And now, The Mentors Radio, one of the most popular and unique shows on the air today. Here each week, remarkable CEOs and leaders, including hosts Tom Laurie and Dan Hesse, and their guests will mentor you, challenging your thinking about life and work. Sought after for their ethical leadership and advice, and for helping others succeed throughout their careers, now these same CEOs, the mentors, want to help you achieve your highest level of profitability, success, and personal fulfillment in life, at work, and in business. Learn more and check out the show notes at TheMentorsRadio.com. That's TheMentorsRadio.com. And now, here's your mentor. Welcome. I'm Dan Hesse, and I'll be your host today. Thanks for joining us. Our special guest is Bill Zollers. After graduating magna cum laude and Phi Beta Kappa from the University of Minnesota, Bill joined Eastman Kodak, where he held roles in finance, strategic planning, marketing, logistics, and general management during a 24-year career. He left Kodak to establish the integrated logistics business at Ryder Systems and grew it from $300 million to $1.5 billion in sales in three years. He later became president of Yellow Freight and two years later was promoted to chairman, president, and CEO of YRC, a company he grew from $1 billion to $10 billion in revenue and into the Fortune 250 during his 12 years as CEO. He serves on the boards of Cigna, Prologis, and several private companies, and he was chairman of Cerner until it was sold to Oracle last year. He is also in his third year as a governor of the U.S. Postal Service. There have been accounts in academic and business journals written about the demise of Kodak, but none I'm aware of with the anecdotes and inside story that Bill shares. Welcome, Bill. Thanks, Dan. Great to be with you. Well, you and I discovered when we met in Kansas City for the first time that we both went to the same public high school in Minnesota, Edina High School. We didn't know each other then as you were already catching passes for the football team at the University of Minnesota while I was missing free throws for Edina High School. But yeah, after you, graduating... <laughs> you, never, you never pass up an opportunity to remind everyone that I'm older than you, but that's right. I, I was trying to do that diplomatically, Bill. You didn't, you know, but you reminded them, yes, you're so much older than me. You were already in college. Exactly. Um, but uh, after graduating from uh, Minnesota, looking very much like Ron Burgundy in that uh, photo that I, that I saw of you, uh, you began your career at Kodak where you not only had many different functional roles, but you lived and worked in Japan, Canada, and Europe. So what special perspective did such a broad and global view uh, give you of the company? Well, Dan, I think this is obviously a little bit of a bittersweet story for me because uh, I worked with a lot of really great people at Kodak. Um, and so the demise of Kodak, in, in a way, is a very sad story. Uh, and a ch sad chapter in my life. On the other hand, I think it's a good story because it points out how uh, companies make bad strategic decisions. And sometimes there's a different option that could lead to a different result. And I think Kodak is a great example of that. My, my background at Kodak gave me an opportunity to see the company from a bunch of different vantage points. Um, and I did spend about eight years living and working overseas, which again added to that, uh, that broader perspective on what was going on in the company. And I was there kind of watching it fly into the mountain uh, for about the last 15 years uh, of my career at Kodak. Did being abroad, you know, versus 
you know, having that, we'll call it that external outside in view, um, give you a different point of view. Do you feel then, you know, if you were at, at, uh, at HQ, I mean, I, um, you know, it was, I think of Kodak as a kind of a Rochester based company. Um, right. what was it, you know, um, what was it like being outside of Rochester, looking at the firm versus being inside of Rochester and, and evaluating the company? Well, it was really different. Uh, you know, there were people at, at uh, General uh, Headquarters, Intergalactic Headquarters for Kodak that thought the further away you get from Rochester, the dumber you get. And actually it was the inverse of that. I think the, the further away from kind of the epicenter of Kodak and the, and the kind of insular culture that was there, uh, the more you saw things with a with a broader perspective. So I think those opportunities to work in the UK and in Japan and in Canada uh, added to my ability to put things in perspective in terms of where the company was headed. So, you know, can you describe what the culture of Kodak was like? You know, what kind of key key attributes were there to, you know, to the Kodak culture? Sure. Well, I think you you rightly pointed out that it's a Rochester-based uh, company, uh, was a Rochester-based company, and, and it was a very insular kind of culture. Um, everybody kind of belonged to the same clubs. Their kids went to the same schools. Um, there was really one perspective on the business, and that was we were in the silver halide film business. And that wasn't going to change. Uh, you put that together with 100 years of CEOs that were all chemical engineers. And it's the classic of if you're a hammer, everything looks like a nail kind of culture. So very insular uh, in a small city in upstate New York, kind of divorced from what was going on in the rest of the world. What was the board culture like? Uh, part of the issue here, I think, goes back to kind of the core perspective on, on why Kodak failed. Uh, a lot of people think it was a technology um, decision that, that really brought down Kodak. And in reality, it was a leadership situation. And I think uh, the fact is that if you weren't from the silver halide side of the business, you weren't respected and weren't thought of as an integral part of the team. So even when we did bring in people that were from the developing uh, technology imaging side of the business from outside, uh, they were kind of sequestered and, and kind of uh, partitioned off from the rest of the company. So you ended up kind of continuing to foster the same culture rather than being able to embrace maybe some changes that were needed. I think you told me a story once of a board meeting. It's like a four-hour board meeting when the you know the company was already beginning its decline. So it was a pretty serious time, and the company had to take some some steps to improve its profitability. And um, can you des describe what they spent their time on in the meeting? Sure. This this is one of those hard to believe stories, but I was in the room and, and heard it happen. Uh, we had, uh, at that time, Colby Chandler is the CEO of the company. He was on the Ford Motor Company Board of Directors. And one of the perks of being on the Kodak board was you got a free Ford every year to drive. And so at this particular board meeting, Colby was announcing to the board that that was going to end and that you know, the, there would be no more uh, free cars. And out of about a three-hour board meeting, uh, we spent a good two hours of the three hours with the board members complaining about the fact that they were going to lose their company car. 
And at the time, there were much more important strategic issues that needed to be dealt with. And that just gives you a little bit of an insight, I think, into the lack of prioritization that was going on inside the board at that point. We'll be back in a few minutes with our guest mentor, former YRC CEO and Kodak veteran, Bill Zollers, as we discuss the behind the scenes story of Kodak's demise. Go to our website, thementorsradio.com and click on list of shows to listen to past guests. This is Dan Hesse, and you are listening to The Mentors Radio Show. And now, back to The Mentors, where remarkable CEOs challenge your thinking about life and business. Welcome back. This is Dan Hesse, and I'm with Kodak veteran Bill Zollers, and we're talking about the collapse of American icon Kodak. Remember, you can also listen to the show or any previous show via podcast on Apple, TuneIn, Spotify, Google, and more on any device at any time. Subscribe at thementorsradio.com. So, Bill, you know, it kind of had to hard, it had to be pretty hard for any outsider to penetrate that kind of strong insular culture. Tell me about your experience bringing revered management consultant CK Prahalad to work with Kodak senior management team. Yeah, I still have scars from that, Dan. Um, at the time, C.K. Prahalad, University of Michigan professor, was probably the number one management consultant in the country, and, and you could make a case for it, I think, in the world. And so uh, I was in Rochester in kind of a transition period when they were trying to figure out what else they could do with me. And um, I was really concerned about the whole technology change that was starting to impact the market. And so I convinced my boss, who was the number three guy at Kodak at that point, we should bring in somebody that had some perspective on strategic direction. And CK had come up with this idea of core competency, which I think everybody is taught now in business school. Um, so we brought CK in. Uh, we had the top 50 leaders at Kodak sitting in the conference room. CK came in the first day and he said, here's how I work. I do this in two days. First day I listen, you tell me about your market, you tell me about your strategy. I go away and think about it. And then tomorrow we put together a plan and then I'll come back in six months and see how we're doing. So we went to dinner that night, had a big dinner. We get back in my car and taking CK to the hotel. And he said, I have something to tell you. And I said, what's that? He goes, I'm not coming back tomorrow. And I said, that's a joke, right? He goes, no, I'm serious. I'm not coming back tomorrow. He said, I've concluded after today that your management team is too dumb to work with. <laughs> and then see, the coup de grace was, he said, and you need to just go deliver that message tomorrow. And I said, well, first of all, that's not going to happen. I could see my whole career flashing before my eyes. I said, you, <laughs> if you feel that way, you've got to come in and tell, tell people you feel that way. He said, okay, you're right. I will. So he comes in the next morning, gets up in front of the group. He's got his luggage with him, which is not a good sign. And on the way over, I asked him if he had changed his mind. He said no. So he gets up in front of the whole group of 50, and he, he basically says, uh, I'm not going to be with you today. I've got to go back uh, to University of Michigan. And we you know, tried to find out if he had a personal issue or anything like that. And he said, no, no, it's got nothing to do with that. He said, the only resource I really have that I can manage is my time, and I don't think I can I can really help you. And so my boss said, well, why don't you think you can help us? He said, because I, I just don't think you guys get it, and I don't think you are going to get it. Um, and so with that, he said, thanks for your time, took his luggage and left, at which point 
my boss and everybody else kind of laughed. They thought it was part of the part of the story. And they said, go out and get him, bring him back in. I said, well, I can go out there, but I don't think he's there. I think he's gone. And so I went out, of course, CK had left going back to Michigan. And I came back in and said, no, he's, he's gone. He meant what he said. He doesn't think he can help us because he doesn't feel like we have really any of the perspective that would be necessary to change the direction of the company. And then, of course, all the anti-consultant jokes started um, and the excuses. He doesn't understand us. You know, we've been successful for 100 years. Um, you know, he's just a consultant. What does he know? He's an academic. And so at that point in time, I realized that if we didn't listen to the number one strategic consultant in the, in the field of management and, and we were really doomed to continue to go down the path we were following that I needed to, I needed to get out. This is Dan Hesse. You are listening to the Mentors Radio Show. We are with Bill Zollers talking about the culture at Kodak. So following up, Bill, you know, actually, when I was in business school, one of the cases we studied was, was Kodak versus Fuji. Um, how seriously did Kodak take the threat of Fuji? I know you spent some time in, in Japan as well. And how hard did they work to keep Fuji out of, this is part of kind of strategic strategy, global strategy back then, the home market, the U.S.? Yeah, well, not hard enough, obviously. Um, I think there was a turning point. And, and the whole perspective on competition that occurred in 1984. Up until that time, Kodak was basically a monopoly, which you know was a pretty good place to be if you're going to be in business. Being a monopoly is is not a bad not not a bad position to be in. But then Fuji uh, started to grow beyond Japan and and into Asia. But in 1984, you may recall that the U.S. Uh, was this was the home of the Olympics, and Peter Uberoff was the was the head of the U.S. Olympic Committee, and he told all the sponsors uh, that there was a new sheriff in town that, that he was not interested in losing any money uh, with the Olympics in the U.S. as every other country had done uh, for a long time. So that message went out to the sponsors. Kodak had been the film sponsor of the Olympics uh, since probably Greece. I don't know. It goes back a long way. So I was part of the team that went to negotiate with the Uberoff team on what it was going to cost. Uh, we went into a conference room. They looked at our pitch, said, you're way too low in what the sponsorship's going to cost you. And our leader of the team, when we went away for a sidebar, decided that was the size we were going to go. So, you know, we lost the Olympic sponsorship for about $2 million. And that was the foothold Fuji needed. They gave the sponsorship to Fuji. Fuji came in, built a film plant, built a paper plant, and were off and running and started what I refer to as the sleigh ride to hell, which was the loss of major chunks of market share on an annual basis to, to Fuji. You know, when you say sleigh, sleigh ride to hell, I remember a book I read at Edina High School by uh, Edith Wharton called Ethan Frome about a, a sleigh ride to hell. So those who have read the book will know exactly what I'm talking about. We'll be back in a few minutes with our guest mentor, former YRC CEO and Kodak veteran Bill Zollers. Remember, you can listen live to our Saturday broadcasts anywhere in the world by going to San Francisco 860 The Answer. This is Dan Hesse, and this is the Mentors Radio Show. And now, 
Back to the Mentors, where remarkable CEOs challenge your thinking about life and business. Welcome back. This is Dan Hesse, and I'm talking with former YRC CEO Bill Zollers about the impact of a leader's decisions. So, Bill, you know, Kodak invented digital photography and had, I think it was 1,100 digital patents, which is just an amazing number. Why did they let others dominate a field they invented? Well, I think it's a combination of things, Dan, but it really came down to the leadership of the company. And, and a couple of the components of that were when you've been doing something for 100 years um, and you've been very successful, that that success sometimes becomes a big barrier to change. And I think that was alive and well at Kodak. Uh, the other thing is that the uh, the people at Kodak really did not have the experience to understand what was happening within the imaging business. In fact, when George Fisher uh, came on board in 1984, or 1994, I'm sorry, um, that kind of created a trigger event for me to leave because I was in Chicago at the time. I knew uh, George pretty well, just in a community service sense. And so he called me one day and said, um, I'm going to be your new boss. I said, that's great. We've needed somebody like you for a long time. Uh, George, obviously, at the time was running Motorola. So he understood technology, he understood phones, he understood imaging. Um, so he come on, came on board in, in 94. And the first thing he said to me was, I'd like you to come to Rochester with me and, and help. And I thought to myself, I can't go back to the same conference rooms with the same people and go through this and just run out my career because uh, I'm just, I've had a, had enough of, of a history there to know that we're probably not gonna be able to change quickly enough. So I, I decided to leave at that point um, and went, went on to uh, Ryder to help them start their, their logistics business. But George came in and for a while, uh, I was very excited just looking at it from the outside because if anybody understood what was going on or should have, it was George. But then I, I read a quote he made in an analyst meeting uh, that was held in 1997, uh, right after they had, had an earnings call. And he said, he made this statement, electronic imaging will not cannibalize film. And once he made that statement, I knew the culture had him. Because for somebody in a position like that to make a statement like that, just shows a complete lack of awareness about what was really going on in the marketplace. So, you know, George left a couple of years after that. I ran into him in an airport um, and he and I spent a few minutes talking and I said, what happened? And he said, you were right. The culture got me. So even somebody with that kind of background and experience was, was able to, to be uh, kind of sub subserved or submerged into the culture of Kodak and, and didn't have the ability to do the things that needed to be done to get the company to turn. Yeah, you know, I, I met George, got to know him a little bit because he was on the board of directors of AT&T when I was the CEO at AT&T Wireless. It kind of reminds me, um, you know, some of your stories about Kodak, the parallels to, to AT&T. You know, I was running AT&T Wireless and I remember how hard it was for me to convince them to let me launch this simple wireless rate plan called Digital One Rate because they were concerned it was going to cannibalize the payphone and calling card business. Um, and 
and you know, but I won, I finally won that battle, but I really lost the war. And it's a story that our chief network officer, chief technology officer at AT&T at the time, Frank Iana, loves to tell because he was there because after the success of digital one rate, the big problem we had at AT&T was what was called the last mile. We were a long distance company, but we had to use, you know, the facilities of the local phone company to get all the way to the customer that, that last mile. So I proposed to the company $10 billion. I'll buy nine companies, nine small companies, but we didn't have a total national footprint. If I bought these nine companies across the country, now this is 1998, we'd have 50 state coverage. We wouldn't have to work on anybody else. There was no other national rate plan. We wouldn't have had any trouble with regulatory issues at all because the FC, the DOJ and FCC looked at local competition, and this wasn't where there was any competition, and they weren't even thinking about national rate plans. Anyway, that $10 billion, they told me no. And by the way, for me, I said, we got the last mile. That's the last mile. It's wireless. We get all the way to our user, all the way to the phone. And a couple months later, AT&T announced it was going to spend 10 times that much, $100 billion for two cable companies, TCI and Media One, which not only had all these technical difficulties, but only covered a third of the country. And of course, that was kind of the beginning of the end for AT&T, which had to sell itself off into a bunch of parts. People think, well, AT&T is doing fine. Now, that was a company called SBC that bought the piece of AT&T that had the brand. Then they changed their name to AT&T. But that big, great company kind of never exists. So, you know, Kodak also, you know, kind of made some interesting decisions of what to acquire and what not to acquire. Can you share any of those? Sure. I think, you know, one of the commonalities between AT&T and Kodak is arrogance and hubris. So it kind of goes back to that, you know, don't tell me that what we're going to do, what we have been doing is going to have to change because, you know, we've been so successful for so long. I'll give you a couple of examples. I was on a team uh, that was assigned to look at buying Apple. And, and this was at a time when Apple was not doing really well. Um, and we concluded in the brilliance of the analysis that it would have been a mistake. And it would have been a mistake for Apple for sure, because I'm sure we would have screwed it up immediately, if not uh, immediately within a, a short period of time. So we did, we did not buy Apple. Good for them. Uh, not so good for, for Kodak, although uh, we probably wouldn't have been able to make that a, a success story. The other thing is we did spend a ton of money. Uh, we bought Sterling Drug, uh, which was a company that's that basically uh, its biggest product and most profitable product was Bayer Aspirin. So we didn't get that in the acquisition. We decided to exclude that. Uh, we bought uh, Verbatim, which was the biggest floppy disk company in the world at the time. And there's nobody under the age of 50 that even knows what that is. Um, but it used to be a, a capture medium uh, in the technology business. We bought them. Uh, I went to Japan to do a, a joint venture on audio and videotape, and we all know how that ended up. So there was a just an opportunity to spend a lot of money um, on stuff that would have really helped us, consistent with your story at AT&T, because we did have the first digital camera in 1975. We did have 1,100 technology patents uh, in the electronic imaging field. And in fact, when Kodak finally declared bankruptcy, they lived for two years on selling those digital patents that they had built up over a long period of time. Yeah, it's a sad story. 
This is Dan Hesse, and you are listening to the Mentors Radio Show. We're with Bill Zollers talking about what went wrong at Kodak. So you mentioned, Bill, that you know you you're in Chicago. You saw the writing on the wall, and you went into you, you left Kodak and went into the transportation business at Ryder and later at Yellow. What was it about your Kodak experience that made this a logical next step for you? Well, you know, probably the most uh, applicable piece of my career uh, for that was I ran the logistics network in Europe for five years. And uh, at that time, this was 1985 to 1990, they had just passed something. This was well before um, the European community had been established, but they they had passed some regulations that erased really the customs barriers between countries. So I was sent over there to take the 40 or so individual logistics networks and build a pan-European network. And so I did that um, in 1985, went over there in 85. My boss said, you got two years to do it. After six months, I called him and said, this is not going to be done in two years. It's going to take a lot longer. And he said, why? And I said, because these people have been killing each other for 300 years over here, and they're not interested in listening to a guy that's only going to be here a couple of years because everybody's career path is really in the hands of the country general managers. And so uh, we got a lot done eventually, but there was just a tremendous amount of um, what I would call country and cultural barriers that we had to break through to get everybody focused on the same objective and, and on the same team. But that probably formed the basis for my interest in logistics. And uh, I had spent some time in Canada working on logistics and, and at Kodak uh, in the US as well. So I had plenty of logistics background. They were looking for somebody that had international experience as well. So it just it just kind of fit together. So what were the, like, if you had to just say, there were a few key lessons I learned at Kodak that I wasn't going to, you know, that, that I learned from that I wasn't going to make the same mistake again at, at Kodak. What were the, I mean, at, 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 at Ryder, what were the key lessons you took away from Kodak? Well, I think, you know, the one thing Kodak missed was the value and, and the power of diversity. And I mean that in, in the sense of, you know, the people coming in from the, the, the electronic imaging side of the business were were never really listened to very uh, very intently, and as a result, they were kind of put off to the side and and partitioned away from the core business. Um, so, I one of the things that I took with me uh, from my experience in Europe is that you really have to have enough uh, empathy to understand where everybody's coming from, and and that was something that uh, was a real valuable lesson from my time at Kodak. We'll be back in a few minutes with our guest mentor, Kodak veteran and current U.S. Post Office Governor Bill Zollers, talking about how an insular culture and poor decisions led to Kodak's demise. This is Dan Hesse, and this is The Mentors Radio Show. And now... Back to The Mentors, where remarkable CEOs challenge your thinking about life and business. Welcome back. This is Dan Hesse, and I'm talking with retired YRC chairman and CEO Bill Zollers about how one or two decisions can totally change a company's trajectory. So, um, Bill, you and I are both you know, very customer-centric. I remember you telling me the story of a manager, I think it was in California, 
refusing a request from a very important and profitable customer because it would cause cause the company to miss an internal efficiency metric. Can you tell us about that meeting and what happened? Sure. You know, one of the one of the things that I'm a big believer in is that if you're going to lead an organization, especially a big one, uh, you have to be visible. So I spent 18 months really in the field, uh, just getting in front of everybody and and explaining where we were trying to take the company. And and as you know, um, the first time you do that, people are are probably not going to be paying a lot of attention because they've heard it before. But if you go out and say the same thing repeatedly four or five times, uh, then they start to, to understand, especially if you have some success. So the West Coast issue uh, was one where I went uh, to California, person was running the whole uh, West for us, and sitting in his office, hadn't met him before, um, and one of his people came in and said, hey, we've got a shipment. It was about four o'clock in the afternoon. We've got a shipment that, that needs to go out, but it's going to be um, way out and, and it's going to screw up our internal productivity metrics. Do you want me to do it? And so he said, no, I, I think, you know, just tell him no. So the guy left. I looked at the, the West Western Region VP and said, was that a good customer? He said, oh, yeah, one of our best customers. I said, so let me get this straight. You turned down serving a really good customer to protect your internal metrics. And he said, well, I wouldn't put it that way quite, but yeah, I guess so. I said, okay, well, I really appreciate all, all the effort and time you've put into the company, but you're done. And he thought I was joking and he laughed. And I said, no, I'm serious. I said, we, it's obvious to me that you've got the wrong view. Uh, we're in the service business. The only thing you have in the service business is the kind of relationship you create with your customers. And if, if you're not willing to invest in putting the customer at the center of what we're doing, then I don't think you're going to get us where we need to go. So that was an example of somebody that I felt like, you know, going back to Jim Collins and getting the right people on the bus and from good to great, uh, one of the great business books ever written, I think. Getting the right people on the bus is is important in every company. Kodak didn't do that. Um, I wasn't going to repeat that mistake back to an earlier question that you had. And so I felt like we needed to really make sure that everybody that was on the leadership team had the same vision of the future and was, was willing to put the customer in the center of everything we did. Yeah. And, you know, sometimes in a big company, you know, it's, it's, it's never... Um, you know, it's never easy to let anybody go, but sometimes people understand why, and it sends a very important message, I think, throughout throughout the company, because people know why. There's there, you know, they do, they know why it happens. Yeah, I, I tried to make that point. Um, and I, I I didn't use a very artful term, but I said, you know, sometimes public hangings are are very good ways to send a message to the company. And so, you know, my HR person used to get really nervous when I said that, but I said, you know, it's not only just the people you're letting go because everybody knows who they are. So not only do you get rid of the people that shouldn't be there, but you energize the people that do get it. And so it's a, it really pays, pays back in two ways. This is Dan Hesse. You are listening to the Mentors Radio Show. We are with former YRC CEO Bill Zollers discussing the importance of customer satisfaction. So, uh, yeah, I think you um, 
you probably made your head of uh, HR uh, nervous on a number of occasions. So, you know, I learned to work, you know, at AT AT&T with the CWA, the Communications Workers of America. And, you know, you learned to work with the Teamsters. Uh, As a new president of of Yellow, I believe, um, you know, how did you really kind of introduce yourself or be known uh, at the at the Teamsters? Well, I was a big believer in the grassroots um, approach. So I got in front, as I said earlier, in front of a lot of people. I did town hall meetings nonstop for about about 18 months, visiting the major locations multiple times and just trying to talk to people about the business and what we needed to do to be successful. And we were such an internally focused company that all we really measured was how we were doing based on things like productivity, but we didn't really measure customer satisfaction. And so we started by building in the customer satisfaction uh, metrics into our uh, incentive system. And that, that started to get people to understand how important we thought that was. And, you know, I think the people that were at the operating level, the drivers, the dock workers, people like that, started to see more of their fellow workers coming back to work. And so that was really good evidence to them that we kind of were on the right track there. And so as the company started to grow, and you talked a little bit about the growth before, it really resonated through the entire workforce, Teamster, non-Teamster, and made it a lot easier for me to have the conversations with Jimmy Hoffa Jr. that I needed to have to make sure we could sustain that growth. Now, didn't somebody was I was from the union kind of come up to you and get a little too close and pokey in the chest and what have you? And yeah, I uh, I was the only CEO I know that was in a fist fight my first week on the job. Um, it wasn't really my idea, um, but it was in Oakland, California, which was kind of a rough rough spot, and I got a a request from the uh, union steward to go down to the break room and talk about some things in private. And I said, sure, be happy to do that. So we went down there and it was me and the, uh, the HR person who was on that particular trip with me. And this guy, you know, started poking me in the chest and I said, you know, I'm happy to talk to anything, talk about anything you want to, but don't touch me. And they started pushing me. And then things got to the point where I finally said, look, I'm, I'm leaving because this is not going anywhere. And he, he took a swing at me and hit me. And so I responded to that. And um, that story traveled through the entire organization within 20 minutes. And so I would go to other locations and people would stop me on the, on the floor and they would go, hey, I heard what happened in Oakland and give me the thumbs up. So, you know, sometimes things just happen that help you that you have no way of predicting. And that was one of those things. Yeah. Um, You know, I worked, of course, I was not the CEO of the company and I was actually a member of the union working a summer job. I remember in New York City and you kind of had to do something like that to get a little respect uh, in in the group, but pretty unusual for, uh, you know, for a CEO. So this is, you know, Mentors Radio, Bill. who are your mentors and what role did they play in your career? I think I'd probably start with my dad. Um, my dad was a, 
was a B-17 pilot in World War II at the age of 19. So he was flying missions um, over Germany when he was 19 years old with a crew of eight and the biggest plane that the Air Force had. And he got shot down and spent 14 months in a German prison camp and went from six foot two and 210 pounds to six feet and 140 in those 14 months. Um, obviously he got out or I wouldn't be sitting here telling the story, but the thing my dad kind of instilled in me was something I know that, that you're interested in and, and is a core part of, of this particular mentor's effort. And that is doing the right thing. Um, he was a big believer in, in making sure that you knew the difference between right and wrong and was very supportive of making sure that you thought about what the right thing to do was and then did it. My dad was, was my number one mentor too, for sure. We'll be back in a few minutes talking with our guest mentor, former YRC CEO, Bill Zollers, about mentorship. You'll find all of our show notes and links at thementorsradio.com. When you're there, make sure you subscribe so you don't miss any of our shows. This is Dan Hesse, and this is The Mentors Radio Show. And now, back to The Mentors, where remarkable CEOs challenge your thinking about life and business. Welcome back. This is Dan Hesse, and I'm with guest mentor, former YRC CEO, Bill Zollers, discussing success. So, Bill, how do you define success? You know, I think, and it's a combination of defining success and also um, kind of gratification. And that is, when I, when I see people exceed their own expectations, to me, that's success. And I think that can be applied to your family. It could be applied to your employees. It can be applied to shareholders in the, in the public market. Um, I think you're successful if, if you're in a position to help people exceed even their own expectations. And, and that's what gives me uh, kind of the most, most pleasure and most gratification. So um, you're a governor of the U.S. Postal Service. What do you think is the public's greatest misunderstanding of the Postal Service? Uh, I think, you know, the, the term snail mail probably describes what I think the Postal Service would say is, is um, probably the unfair um, description of the Postal Service. The thing to understand about the Postal Service, number one, it's in the Constitution that we have to deliver to every address in America six days a week, and we have to break even. Now, we haven't broken even probably in the last 25 or 30 years. And that's because this thing called email came along and kind of destroyed the business model for the Postal Service. And that destruction of the business model, I don't think is well understood by the general public. The other thing the general public doesn't realize because they are they probably haven't lived overseas is that you've probably got the best deal in the U.S. for mail and packages than you'll get anywhere in the world relatively. So um, it's got to be, uh, the network's got to be rebuilt because it was built in 1970 before email. We're in the process of doing that. We're making good progress, but it's going to take a while to, to fix it because it's been broken for so long. Now you spent a summer, I think it was in Las Vegas, as a drummer for a rock band. 
What role did that play in your eventual success, Bill? It told me I didn't really have much of a future in music um, and that I better look somewhere else. So we had a, a group called the Four Speeds. Um, it was a group that played in the lounge, so never in the big room. I saw all kinds of different demographics, as you can imagine, uh, from early in the evening to you know, 2 a.m. There was all kinds of different forms of humanity that ran, went through there. Um, but it, it also showed me that if you get off on the wrong path, um, it's very easy to lose control of your life and end up in a place that you didn't want to be. So uh, there were a lot of negative um, lessons that came out of that or, or lessons about what not to do. Uh, but I also uh, love music, always have, always will. I know you're a huge music fan. Uh, it's kind of in your DNA uh, or it isn't. But uh, that part of my life was was a, another learning experience, another different chapter. Well, Bill, thanks. Really appreciate you joining us here today. You know, your story is apropos for anyone who thinks this could never happen to us. <laughs> um, Bill's given us a glimpse inside a culture so insular that one of the world's most famous management consultants refused to work with Kodak. Please go to thementorsradio.com and subscribe. You can also listen to us online, on any device, at any time, on any podcast platform like Apple, Google, Stitcher, TuneIn, or Spotify. Join us next week at the same time for another edition of The Mentors Radio. Until then, this is Dan Hesse signing off. Remember, you're never too informed or experienced to stop learning. It's been The Mentors, where remarkable CEOs challenge your thinking about life and business. To get more information about the program or a sponsor, to download a podcast of today's show, or to leave a question for our host, go to TheMentorsRadio.com. That's www.TheMentorsRadio.com. The preceding program, Copyright CBJ, LLC. All rights reserved.